to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And let's read beginning in verse 14. That reading may be found on apparently on page 869 in the Pew Bible, which I'm reading from. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let us pray. Our Father, it has all come to this moment when we seek to hear from you through your holy word. We confess this to be the word of God. It's perfect in what it teaches us. It is needful for us. And we await you. So I pray that you will overcome all the obstacles to unbelief in this room, our own sin and our own stubbornness, and that you would overcome our inadequacies in every way and cause your word to be heard today and received in power and that it would bear fruit in us unto eternal life. Build your church, the church of your son, which he died to purchase. Be merciful to us poor sinners today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the 1970s, there was a Christian book that got a lot of attention. It was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It was written by a guy who was an agnostic college student, and he, was, he had set out to debunk Christianity and ended up finding evidence for the gospel that was so compelling to him that he became a Christian. And then he wrote that book later, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Of course, it turns out that evidence presented to make the case for Christ doesn't ever really demand a verdict from unbelievers. 
that is, the evidence cannot compel the unbeliever who sees it to believe. That's because sin renders unbelievers perfectly willing and able to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as the Bible teaches us. But I know what the author meant when he picked that title. Uh, It's just that it would have been more accurate. It wouldn't have been as catchy uh, if he had titled his book, Evidence That Always Gets a Verdict, Just Not Always the Right One. That's not that's not a great book title. Uh, it's not not a great sermon title either. So, but it it just turns out that the truth of the gospel, the truth of salvation that Jesus Christ came to accomplish, it always does get a verdict from people. It always gets a response. It just doesn't always get the right response. Sometimes it gets a really bad response. Now, in our passage today, in Luke, Jesus Christ is revealing his salvation through teaching and advancing the kingdom of God. And whenever Jesus holds out the kingdom to people, he gets a response. It's not possible not to respond to the kingdom of God. But the response matters. Now, I wonder if having said that, if that has just piqued your interest even a little bit. Do you know what is your response to the kingdom of God? Do you know what it ought to be? Are you willing to listen to Jesus tell us what it ought to be? And even to examine where your response really is. I think our passage can help you do that this morning. Now, whether you're a a visitor here, a newbie to these things, or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, I think our passage can help you to do that if you'll listen to the Lord. Now, let me set this portion of Luke, because we're not in a series. Let me just set it in its context just a little bit. In this part of Luke's gospel, we find Jesus now resolutely on the road to Jerusalem where he has explicitly told his disciples he expects to be rejected and abused and killed by the elders of the chief priests and the scribes. He said that very plainly to them just a couple of chapters earlier than this. And as he heads toward Jerusalem, he continues to preach the kingdom of God through his words his kingdom message, declaring what he's doing, and through his deeds, his kingdom miracles, which demonstrate and illustrate what he says. So together, the spoken message and the miracles are proclaiming the same reality. Christ has come to save sinners and to usher them into his new creation kingdom. And this salvation that he came to accomplish is going to be for the whole world, for everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, it won't matter. But how is the world going to respond to this salvation? That's where we're at right here in this passage. Now, the theme of the message, as I put it on this handy little outline in your bulletin, is that Christ brings God's kingdom in power. And faith responds By heeding the signs, receiving deliverance, and persevering in the word. Let's look at this text together and some verses that follow that we haven't read yet. 
Pick it up again in verse 14 where we did read. He was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So this business of Jesus casting out a demon has been routine in his ministry up till now. He has sent out his disciples to go and do the same thing. First he sent out the 12, and then just recently he sent out 72. And it turns out that all the miraculous works that Jesus does, all of his healings, all of his casting out of demons and that sort of thing, those are all the counterpart to the verbal message that he preached. He preached that the kingdom of God had broken in with his arrival and that he had come to bring salvation. He told us he came to bring good news to the poor. He came to bring sight to the blind in a spiritual sense. He came to declare the year of God's favor. That's all salvation talk. So his miracles illustrated the salvation that he came to bring. He can make the blind to see. He can make the lame to walk. He can set free the ones oppressed by Satan. Now in our, in our text, it was a demon that was making the man mute. And Jesus cast out the demon. Everybody who saw it was amazed that the man could now talk. But there were two bad responses to that demonstration that we get noted in the text that we read. The first bad response was somebody said, well, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons, Beelzebul. So they accused Jesus of operating with satanic power, like he's an agent of the devil. They saw his kingdom miracle, but they considered it a sign of Satan's power at work. Bad response. And some, it says, in order to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, in case it's not obvious, this response of they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven has got to be interpreted a certain way. Jesus had just shown the people a sign from heaven. He cast out a demon to heal a mute man. It's not as though they were not watching when he did that. So when it says they kept seeking a sign from heaven, it means they wanted more and more. It means they wanted the signs for the wrong reasons, in other words. The reason for the signs was to communicate the kingdom message, to validate the divine source of that message. The signs were witnesses to the gospel. Witnesses to the gospel. They never did constitute definitive proof to the unbelieving as though all they needed was better evidence and then they'd be forced to believe. Nothing will suffice for that because the problem of unbelief is not a lack of evidence but a lack of ability to see. But but that is a response that they gave. And what's revealed here is that the there's people who want the signs for the sake of the signs. They want the pizzazz. They want the show. They, they don't want to be forced to respond to the kingdom of God, but there's their response. And Jesus answers both of these bad responses. He redirects them. If you pick it up again in verse 17 where we read, 
Listen to how he responds to their response or how he redirects it. It says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So here's his his answer to the accusation of Satanism. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. A kingdom that's at war with itself has lost already. If I were working for Satan, Jesus said, that would mean Satan was already done. And then he kind of throws in a little aside. And oh, by the way, since uh, you've got guys in your midst, your disciples, your sons, who also go around performing exorcism, why doesn't that criticism apply to them? By whom do they cast them out? But never mind, let's circle back to that. (laughs) Let me just say that if I, by the finger of God, that is, the power of God at my hands, if I cast out Satan, if I cast out his minions, then you have to conclude that the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what that means. The kingdom of God has come Jesus said to them. And then he said, look, here's the analogy. If there's a king in his castle surrounded by armed guards, he manages to hold on to his own goods. But when a stronger king with a stronger army shows up and beats him down and disarms him, then the stronger king can take his stuff. That's what Jesus And he's saying, look, I just took Satan's stuff. You just watched me take his stuff. I set this man free from the dominion of Satan. Right in front of you, Satan's kingdom has been invaded by the kingdom of God. Now, you should have it clear in your minds, dear ones, that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus is announcing that. It has not come in its fullness or in its finality. There's more to come. But it came with Jesus, and it's still here, and it's growing. The kingdom, you should know, is always wherever the king is. And he was there, and he's here. So the kingdom of God is here. But catch the all-important kicker to that little comment. He said, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather... With me scatters. That's Jesus saying everybody responds to the arrival of the kingdom of God. Because you're either with me or you're not. If you're not with me, be assured you're against me. The kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is plundering Satan's realm by gathering people to himself. So whoever's not gathering with Jesus is actually scattering for Satan. Nobody's a non-combatant in this war. Jesus is warning everybody 
that a non-response to the kingdom is not possible. You're either a victim and an ally of Satan, or you are somebody rescued and enlisted by Jesus. So he says, be warned. That's the way it is now that the kingdom is here. And then he redirects that other bad response to the kingdom. That was his redirect of the accusation of Satanism. But then pick it up again in verse 24 and you'll hear him do some more redirecting. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This little saying these couple of little sayings here by Jesus is perplexing to many people, but I believe its placement right here by Luke indicates that this is Jesus redirecting that bad response that he got above to those who kept seeking signs, more signs, after he gave them this sign. So he does a little teaching. He says, listen, when a demon is cast out, It goes to waterless places. We think that's just symbolic of evil, of waste places, like that comment in Jude about the evil and godless people who creep into the assembly and they're called waterless clouds. But he says that demon goes out, but then it comes back and it brings help with him so it can reoccupy the house that it was cast out of, was temporarily swept into order, and he says... The latter state is worse than the first state. The implication here that you ought to catch is not to make this real mysterious. Satan does not give up his goods easily. A superficial miracle, a flashy show of power does not overcome the evil one and plunder his kingdom. You know, there are people who have spiritual experiences, even miraculous spiritual experiences, who are not thereby set free from Satan's power. Witness the sons of the Jews that he just talked about. Your sons are out casting out demons. That doesn't mean anybody's been set free from Satan's power. They're not people whom Jesus has set free and saved. They're just people who've seen a sign or experienced A wonder. Now these are real experiences, but it's not real salvation that they've experienced. Because signs and wonders are not what saves people. Jesus saves people. And his signs and wonders bear witness to his salvation. So I think this teaching is not meant to get us pondering about where demons go but to get us understanding how Jesus saves. Jesus saves by banishing the devil from your life forever. That's what he does. So the people clamoring for more and more signs are the ones who are going to be disappointed that the signs didn't really do anything for them. The demons didn't really go away. The devil wasn't really kicked out. 
And I think you can see that that's what this means because of that last little part. The next words, I think, about the woman, some of your Bibles have those isolated, you know, your Bible likes to put in headings and disregard all that. This woman, sort of out of the blue, blessed is the womb that bore you. Like, where's she coming from? What's going on here? A woman says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nurses you. And Jesus says, depending on your translation, on the contrary, or as I believe it can be and should be translated, yes, indeed, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I think the translation is, blessed is the the womb that bore you. Yes, yes, she is blessed because blessed are all the ones who, like her, hear the word of God and keep it. They're the ones that are blessed. The ones who hear the word of God and keep it. That is, they believe the gospel and they persevere in that faith with the result of obedience to the word of God. Those are the same ones who are set free from Satan's dominion by Jesus and the demons don't come back. The problem with seeking signs is that you seek them More and more without listening to the message of the signs that you see, Jesus says. I've given you a sign of my salvation. I'm overturning Satan's kingdom and setting people free. And you just want to see more signs. You're missing what my signs are saying. Blessed are the ones who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, Jesus continues... In his discourse here, we're going to read a little more that we haven't read yet. He continues to call people out for their response to the kingdom of God that has come upon them in his arrival. Look at verse 29 and let's keep reading a little bit more. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So Jesus says to them, listen, it's an evil generation that seeks for a sign. Now we've already commented on what Jesus is getting at. He's the one performing the signs. He's the one sending disciples to perform signs. He's not against signs. That's not the evil that he's rebuking. He rebukes the evil of craving signs for their own sake, while never responding to them in the way that indicates 
that salvation has come to you. The signs are for a purpose. They have a saving purpose. If you crave them for their own sake and reject the salvation that they represent, then you're missing out entirely. And so he says, well, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus means that he will not indulge their clamoring for supernatural signs for their own sake, for the sake of the signs. He will instead proceed to do the one thing that he came to do to accomplish salvation. And that will be the sign that they need to heed. Now you remember Jonah, right? He spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish only to be metaphorically resurrected. The Bible says vomited up to go and preach to the Gentiles of Nineveh. Jesus elsewhere very explicitly teaches us, if it wasn't obvious to us, that Jonah's experience was typological. It was pictorial of his own. Jesus must go to the cross and there he must die for the sins of his people and rise after three days and three nights in the grave, just like Jonah's three days and nights. And after that, the message of Christ's salvation would be preached around the world for people to be saved. The signs are all alike preaching salvation. And this is the granddaddy of all the signs that he's talking about now. This is Papa sign right here. Jesus Christ must die on the cross to save us from our sins. He must bear our sins in his body on the cross and suffer the penalty that our sins deserve. He must be humiliated for our sins. He must bleed for our sins. He must give his last breath and shed the last drop of his blood for our sins. That's what your sin deserves. And he's the only just basis upon which God will forgive your sins. His death and resurrection. That is the only just basis on which God will receive you to himself. Your spiritual defilement requires cleansing by the blood of Christ. Your spiritual debt requires payment by the blood of Christ. There is no saving power in any acts of power apart from this one great act of power. Jesus must, in obedience to God and of his own freely given love, I might add, he must step into your place and carry your burden and die for it. And then he must rise. Only then can you, the blind one, be made to see. 
Only then can you, the deaf one, be made to hear. Only then can you, the mute one, be set free to tell the glories of God. Only then can you, the dead one, be made alive in Christ. The sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus that the gospel is already being preached right here in this passage. And people are already being saved by it. They were saved in Jonah's day when the gospel was preached and believed. They were saved in this time. The disciples are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This kingdom salvation is being held out and people have to respond to it. They always do. Jesus is warning that failure to respond in faith is cause for condemnation. It's still a response, but it's a bad response if it's not of faith. And so he gives the exhortation that people ought to be heeding the signs and heeding the sign that's coming. Pick it up in verse Well, we read it in verse 31 already, didn't we? The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment, he says, with the men of this generation and condemn them from the ends of the earth. Uh, for, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and something greater than Solomon is here. See, the queen of Sheba, she was called, Jesus says, one day she's going to condemn you guys, this generation. Now, she came... She was in the day of Solomon, and Solomon was famous. She'd heard of it. She was a powerful Gentile queen, and she came from far away because she'd heard all these stories about Solomon, the wisest man in the world and the richest and most powerful king in the world. And she came into Solomon's court, and you should go back and read it sometime. She saw his wealth and his power, and she heard his wisdom, and her reply was, you know, I'd heard about you, but I hadn't heard the half of it. I'm stunned by your wisdom. So this Gentile queen, when she heard the wisdom of God in the mouth of God's king, she received what he was offering. And the point is, Solomon was only a type of the coming king who is the wisdom of God. Solomon was only a man who pointed to Christ. His wealth and his power only typified Christ's heavenly wealth and heavenly power. And now at last, the king has come. Now at last, David's greater son has come to occupy the throne. He must die, he must rise, and he must reign in all his wisdom. And Jesus says to these Jews, that Gentile queen of Sheba embraced the wisdom of God when she saw it and heard it in Solomon. And something a lot greater than Solomon is here right now. And you won't listen to me. And he says the same thing about the men of Nineveh. He says one day they're going to rise up and condemn this generation. We already spoke about Jonah's mission. You know, he preached a message that was a call to repentance. He preached the gospel in advance. And they believed it. They responded. They repented. 
Jesus says to these onlookers, the men of Nineveh repented from their sins when they heard Jonah. And something a lot greater than Jonah standing right here. And you hear me, but you won't repent. Now, you need to be clear in your mind that when Jesus is calling them out for not repenting, he's calling them out for not believing. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation from sin has to be believed. And when it is believed, it always brings repentance from sin. Jesus is warning them, do not fail to respond to the signs in the right way. Your response to these things is critical. You have to believe in a way that leads to repentance. And in verse 33 and 36 where we read, he does this little thing about the light and the fact that you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. His point is meant to be transparent at this juncture. Jesus is the light that's been lit. In another gospel, he tells his disciples that they are lights too. But the light we're talking about here is the light of life, the light of truth, the light of salvation. Sin is darkness. Being lost is living in darkness. So the light is turned on and it's put on a stand for the purpose of leading people to come in. And Jesus presses the metaphor a little. I would say he mixes the metaphor a little bit. When he says, you know, your eye is the lamp of your body. Well, okay, it's not that your eye is a source of light. It doesn't glow. But your eye is the lamp of your body in the sense that it's the way the light gets into you. It's a source in that way. The point is that he's making, and he says it, is when you have a healthy eye, the light gets in. But when you have a bad eye, it says an evil eye, then the light doesn't get in. And you remain in the darkness. You're full of darkness. So the warning is very straightforward. He says you better be careful about letting the light in. Letting the light fill you up and staying lighted up. Because taking a glance at the light... And then shutting your eyes will not work. Walking away from the lamp will not work. Keeping your eyes open and fixed on the light is required. Can can you hear what Jesus means? He says, I'm here. I'm the light. You better look to me. You better not look only to the signs, but look to me. You better look to me and keep looking. You better hear the word of God and keep it. You better be set free by me so the demons stay out. Your response to me needs to be like the queen of Sheba. Listen to my wisdom. Your response to me needs to be like the men of Nineveh. Repent at my word. Now I think this is the place to stop, especially if I've made you sleepy and say something directly to some of you sitting here maybe maybe you're a visitor and you've not heard some of these things before maybe you're a regular but none of these ideas have ever landed on you 
in such a way that it's ever changed your life. I want to appeal to you, if you're a person who has never personally put your faith in Jesus Christ and experienced his salvation from sin. If you don't have faith in Christ today, you are still one of the poor souls under the dominion of Satan. The bondage of Satan. Now that just might sound a little extreme to you. That may sound like some pretty flamboyant rhetoric to say you're under the bondage of Satan. Because you don't feel at all like you have anything to do with Satan. You don't feel at all like you're under his power. Heck, you you might not even be sure there is a Satan, much less that he has any grip on you. But I want you to zero in on what Jesus has said in our passage so you understand. He said, whoever is not with me is against me. That makes this whole thing an either-or proposition. Jesus is saying there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the realm of Satan. And that's all there is. So if you are not for Jesus as a citizen of the kingdom of God, somebody who is experiencing kingdom blessing... And living for kingdom purposes, you're gathering with Jesus, then you are against Jesus. You are outside of his blessing. You're scattering along with the other servants of Satan. And that's the case whether you see it that way or not. So I'm just poking at you a little bit. That's the way it is. All these kingdom metaphors in the passage, they have a specific meaning for you if you're outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, the strong man still has you as his spoil. Outside of Christ, your house has never been dispossessed of Satan and set in order for good. Never has. Outside of Christ, you've never heard the word of God and kept it and been blessed. Outside of Christ, you've not listened to the wisdom of the one who is greater than Solomon. You've not heeded the sign of the one who's greater than Jonah. Outside of Christ, you're still in your sins and headed for final judgment by God. A judgment that will come at the hands of this very Savior who's pleading with people right now. Jesus Christ says to you today, and I have it on the authority of his word, that he says to you today, come to me and I will forgive your sins. Come to me and I will break Satan's grip on your life. Come to me and I will receive you into my family, 
into my kingdom, into my intimate circle of friendship and love. You'll be one of mine if you come to me. Now the Bible teaches us plainly that we come to possess Christ's salvation by faith alone. We put our trust in the Savior who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave in victory over death. Faith alone. We don't go about figuring out a way to improve ourselves and get God's attention. No, that's not how it works. We recognize our spiritual bankruptcy in front of him and we plead for mercy from him by faith alone. Now, faith like that is repentant faith. It involves turning from sins in favor of following after Christ. It, it produces a life devoted to heeding God's word in obedience. Faith sets us on the path of heeding God's wisdom, following Christ's teaching, continuing to repent from our sins. This faith unites us to Christ, who puts his spirit in us, So that that kind of remarkable transformation can actually start to happen. My question to you, if you're outside of Christ, is simply this. Will you have what Jesus is offering? He's holding it out today. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's all in play. Will you have what Jesus is offering? It's the same gospel that was being held out then. Will you believe on Christ and receive the entrance by faith into the kingdom of God? I say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You kids all need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You're not in God's kingdom because your parents are. You have to believe. I call on you to believe. Now what do we do? What do we do if we've already trusted in Christ? What does continuing our response to Christ's kingdom today look like? Well, you know, it looks like continuing to heed the wisdom of Christ, the Queen of Sheba, Jesus commended for listening to Solomon's wisdom when she heard it. And it's the same wisdom that you must heed. You have to respond to the kingdom of God by continuing to heed the wisdom of Christ. And that wisdom is nothing less than the apparent foolishness of the cross. I know you've just been talking about that and you're serious because I cheated. Your pastor talked to me. Gospel wisdom is cross foolishness. That's what it is. The the wisdom of God is a cross-centered life. So if you want to continue, if you want to persevere, if you want to hear the word of God and keep it and be blessed, as Jesus puts it, 
you have to continue to pursue a cross-centered life. So what does that look like if you're heeding God's wisdom? Well, it looks like the things of Christ remain at the center of your paradigm. It looks like the priorities of Christ are in the middle of your plans and driving your plans. It frankly looks like the embrace of death. The death of Christ and the willingness to die yourself. The willingness indeed to die to yourself so that you better live for Jesus. That's the wisdom that looks stupid to the world. It looks like saying yes to everything that Jesus has and no to all that your former self would have chased if you hadn't met Jesus. So you die to your pleasures and live for the good of your brothers. You deny your preference and live for the advantage of the cause of Christ. You spend your time where Jesus needs your time. Instead of where you want to spend it. You invest your money in the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus is building. Instead of in the kingdom that you know is passing away. Which by the way if you do it will look like throwing your money away. Right up until the day Jesus comes and reveals that no no that's what investing in eternity looks like. So you have to be wise like Sheba and keep listening to Jesus. Keep listening to Jesus, his wisdom. How else do we continue our response? Well, I think we continue to heed the warning of Christ. We persevere in faith-driven repentance. As Jesus warned his listeners that they were headed for condemnation, but the pagan Gentile inhabitants of Nineveh would one day join in the chorus of condemnation because they listened to the preaching of Jonah in their day. They believed the gospel that Jonah was preaching to them. And when they believed it, they repented. If you're puzzled about that, if it's not clear to you, you should go back and read Jonah. It's very evident that Jonah's message was a message That was a call to repentance. He knew that's what it was. That's why he was mad about it. I don't want to call Gentiles to repent. Because they might. And what did they do? They believed his message and they repented. This link between faith and repentance is so evident there. The apostles preached the gospel by calling men to repent. And the reason for that is that there is no repentance that does not rise first from faith in Christ. All actual repentance is the fruit of saving faith. But the helpful corollary is also the case. All faith in Christ is evidenced. By the practice of repentance. The person who keeps repenting from sin is a person who keeps believing. The person who keeps believing is the only person who manages to keep repenting. 
Everybody else just tries to overcome sin and fails. True faith drives true repentance. And since faith is perpetual and progressive, you know, we don't just believe once and then we're done. So also the repentance that flows out of faith is perpetual and progressive. We don't do penance the way our misinformed friends in Rome do. One act of payback for one transgression or something. Now, repentance, just the way Martin Luther taught us that Jesus taught us, is repentance is characteristic of the whole Christian life until Jesus comes. We keep repenting. We don't arrive at repentance. We keep going in its direction. Repentance represents thinking the right way and acting the right way and turning from wrong thinking and wrong acting over and over again. Repentance is not a destination. It's a process. Now, in the new creation, the fully realized kingdom of God, then it's a destination. That's a destination. In that day, the repentance won't be necessary. But faith that perseveres is going to bring repentance that persists. So I say to you, if you want to continue your response to the kingdom of God, persist in your repentance. And finally, Jesus taught us there that he came to shine the light. He came to heal eyes so that they let light in, that our life is to be lived full of light. So I call on you, continue responding to the kingdom of God. Keep looking at the light and letting it in. You don't look at the shining light once and close your eyes, hoping to walk around by remembering what the light looked like. No, you walk in the light. You let the light in all the time. You listen to what God says all the time. You heed what the Bible teaches you. You grab on to what your gifted pastor is laying down for you from the word of God, and you live in the light of that. You don't walk away from it. You stare at it, and you walk in it. Jesus even goes so far as to enlist you to let that light out so other people can see it. Let your light shine in such a way that others can see Jesus through it. So, my dear brothers, my sisters of Redeeming Grace Church, whom I love, I would like to say to you that all of this is good news. None of it's bad news. It's all good news. Jesus has brought in the kingdom of God. It's here. The kingdom of God is upon us. We are blessed by Christ to hear the word of God and empowered by Christ to keep the word of God. We are blessed by Christ to see the sign of his death and resurrection and empowered by him to repent in response to it. May God give us all together the grace to believe with faith that endures and to live lives enthusiastically responding to the kingdom of God until the king comes for us. Let's pray. Our Father, how we bless you for Jesus our Lord. How we thank you for the kingdom of God. Come at last, so long awaited. and Finally here in Christ How we thank you for the signs he gives us and the spirit he gives us and the deliverance he gives us and how we plead with you, how we plead with you.
to keep us, hold us, move us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.